0: or simply handling life's challenges are all addressed, teaching you to become your own best coach. Well, before beginning today's podcast, let me once again ask you to consider taking a look at my latest book on learning anxiety and depression, the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life. And please, Any questions, comments, or suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please let me know. You can contact me through my website, selfcoaching.net, or my email, selfcoachinghelp, one word, at AOL.com. Well, welcome back. And this week, as I pondered over the many topics I might delve into the one that that seems to uh, resonate most, and maybe it's because I've been having some shaky dreams, is nighttime. What goes on when we we hit the bed and we, we, we try to fall asleep and our thoughts seem to go around and around? Now, especially this is true if you're struggling with something emotionally. You're lying there and it's quiet and dark and your eyes are closed and all of a sudden it's the what-ifs and those to-dos for tomorrow and its the doubts and the fears and the worries well i'm sure you've been there if you're human and those are kind of difficult and frightening nights and it feels very intimidating there's there's just no escape and these thoughts just keep pounding and pounding And eventually, if you're fortunate, you eventually wind up falling asleep. So, what is it about this nighttime reverberation that takes place? Well, part of it is we're on our own. There's no one around to help us out. We are without distractions. Think about it when you wake up in the morning, right? You open your eyes and you kind of start looking at whether it's raining out or sunny and that begins a process you know a constant stream of stimuli "Mm, nice sunny day today as you make coffee and you start to get dressed and all of all of these activities are now kind of filling your mind and kind of replacing the vacuum that was there the night before those nighttime thoughts, those frightening thoughts of a night of struggle, well, where have they gone? Well, they've become muted. They're kind of now a bit under the surface of consciousness as the day becomes more tolerable. Well, more tolerable in a relative sense. If you're struggling with something, obviously, the struggle goes on. But it just seems that the struggle at night, in that vacuous darkness, when we're all alone, it just seems like that's a more terrifying place to be than when we're walking around being distracted by countless stimuli. So let me read to you from one of my favorite authors, Chet Remo, from his book *The Soul of the Night*, and he has a a, a very compelling quote: "The night is the beginning of terror, as every child knows. Who is not afraid of the dark? The gods." Are creatures of daylight, the gods work nine to five at night, we are on our own. I just love that i mean it's it's so true that uh the gods, in this case, the stimuli, the things that kind of distract us from the terrors of the dark um well they the gods only work nine to five. you're on your own after the sun goes down. I kind of like that so so we face these difficult and grinding kind of thoughts, and we, we seem to feel certainly defenseless and almost as we are victims of our own thinking. And it becomes almost impossible to fall asleep. So let me talk a little bit about what you can do and like I said, we all have these bouts where we confront these nighttime demons and some more, some less. But when when you find yourself in one of these nights and you're tossing and turning, or if you're tossing and turning is chronic, I want you to keep in mind that falling asleep is really to a, a way of kind of allowing sleep to find you if you try to go out and find sleep you're going to be going against a current you're going to be stimulating your brain i've got to fall asleep i've got to get up early tomorrow i've got to fall asleep. that's the kiss of death if you're trying to fall asleep the thing is that you need to realize that you need to relax and you begin by relaxing your thoughts and what i mean by that is just an understanding that when you try to solve problems when you try to figure out what the what ifs for example and what if i do this and how will i handle that and the boss is going to say that to me. if you let go of those thoughts see those thoughts are stimulating thoughts they're firing neurons in your brain and especially the worrisome thoughts the anxious thoughts what they're doing is they're they're more or less putting you into your Uh, kind of sympathetic nervous system where adrenaline and cortisol, you know, these are stress chemicals. These are chemicals we give to rev people up. And you're revving yourself up with these thoughts because thoughts are, there's a price to pay for thoughts. They're not innocuous. They have effects in our brain. So when you're lying there trying to figure out tomorrow's difficult problems, you're actually firing up the brain, which is the last thing you want to be doing When you're trying to fall asleep so the first thing you need to realize there's a price to pay for indulging in worrisome anticipatory thinking especially during these darker difficult moments at night so understand that you need to let go of these thoughts now i i understand letting go is a difficult concept but if you understand the price you pay I want you to encourage yourself by the reality that these thoughts are preventing my sleep. Now, for sleep to find you, you need to start to diminish the intensity of these thoughts. And the best way that I know is to dissociate from them by focusing on anything physical. Feel your head in the pillow. Feel the blankets or the sheet against you. Feel the rhythm of your breath. And when I say feel, to the exclusion of any thought, try to be part of your body and that relaxation without interpreting the relaxation. Now I'm going to watch my breath. No, you don't watch your breath. You just allow yourself to become your breath. You allow yourself to become the person lying there as the muscles yield to the mattress and by doing this what you're doing is you are allowing yourself to not have to fire up the brain you're getting yourself now from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic through rest and digest nervous system and you're allowing sleep to find you that's a concept that has always helped me sleep will not find you If you're in an antagonistic mode or an anticipatory worrisome mode, sleep gets pushed aside. For sleep to find you, you have to become a receptive vessel. You have to open yourself up to your psyche in a way that is non stimulating and to just be, be with the physical, be with the relaxation. So you you kind of understand that those thoughts. They need to be put off till the morning. If there are things to be attended to, you are much better suited to attend to these face-to-face, nose-to-nose, come morning. Nighttime is not a good time to solve problems. It makes us less efficient, fatigues us. We don't get the quality of sleep we're after. And it's just a a bad habit to get into. A lot of people, you know, because of the hectic nature of their lives, the hustle-bustle, You know, they look forward to using the nighttime as a time to try to rehearse, to get get into things and figure things out. and It's not a good idea if you want to get restful sleep. If you don't care about that, then you don't have to continue listening to this podcast. Just kidding. But anyway, so get into the parasympathetic nervous system begin to allow sleep to find you and you don't have to figure that out you know this is not a cognitive thing you don't have to figure that out sleep will find you when you stop firing the neurons that are now firing up the brain dumping stress chemicals into your body sleep will find you when you become receptive to it it is a natural phenomena you don't have to figure out how to fall asleep what you need to do is how to encourage yourself to fall asleep more quickly more easily and more naturally okay so once you're asleep now we come to a favorite topic that so many so many have pondered for so long dreams so what happens we switch from that conscious mode of being awake and we transition to that post-nagogic place where where we go from conscious thinking to unconscious revelations the dream world the unconscious world i'm always fascinated by that in-between state and if you i, I like to read it night if i'm reading a book i'll be reading about let's say I'm walking down the uh, the streets of ancient Rome, and all of a sudden, you know, as I'm reading those words, then all of a sudden I realize I'm on a street in Rome. You know, it, it's it's all of a sudden. Your mind is is teeter tottering back and forth between consciousness, wakefulness, and dream consciousness, and then you know that's the the slide into the unconscious. That's what we want. We want to get into that transition from letting go of thinking, whether you read and watching TV. I'm not a big fan of that. I think it stimulates the brain a bit too much. Uh, I think the more you reduce stimulation at night, the better off you're going to be. Having a good bedtime ritual is always such a plus because it, it starts to, behaviorally speaking, it starts to put us in the mode you know, that we're about to fall asleep, and we have a ritual, brushing our teeth, washing our face, do whatever you do, but keep a bedtime ritual as the mind begins to prepare itself and anticipate a relaxing, restful sleep. So now we're in a relaxed, restful sleep, and what happens? <laughs> well, sometimes we have anything but restful sleep. We have uh, nightmares Anxious dreams, terrifying themes, confusing dreams. All kinds of stuff comes up in our dreams. And there are many who have tried to interpret dreams. And there are many, as there are leaves on a tree. There are many, many, many interpretations of dreams. The one thing that I abhor are dream books, books that tend to interpret. If you dream this, then that means that. I know, with uh, growing up with an Italian family, there are lots of, lots of little uh, anecdotes about dreams. You never shake hands with someone that has passed away, <laughs> because that means you're next. Stuff like that. So, stay away from you know quick fix dream interpretations. Uh, more so than not, they they have nothing to do with you, because every symbol has relevance to each of us now of course if you are a jungian carl jung the swiss psychiatrist you'll take uh, uh you'll take exception with that and you'll say well there is the collective symbols collective unconscious where we have universal symbols some the circle the that the, there are things that recur and that do have some kind of collective significance but let's let's not get lost in the weeds of things that are not personal let's keep this discussion right now into the personal aspects of your dream so let's say you go to you go to sleep and you have a dream what does it mean well number one interpreting a dream is like poetry i mean you need to interpret and the best way to interpret a dream that i feel is take a look at what has transpired in the 24 hours preceding the dream oftentimes the dream will work to flush out some of the, the issues of the day, and you'll find nuggets of connectedness to things that have happened, things that have transpired during the day that have upset you or got your attention. So the first thing to do is look for what kind of day it's been prior to the dream to see if there's anything significant. Then you look at the dream, and you see if there's any immediate relevance, any immediate connections. Now, sometimes you don't find that sometimes what you find is maybe a resonance something seems similar, or the emotions of the dream seem similar to the emotions of something you experienced during the day so that's that's always a tip off. but you know, I think that there there are some dreams that are so instructive, some dreams that could be pivotal in turning our lives around and i'm I'm going to read one to you this is this is from my book, Unlearning, Anxiety, and Depression, and I believe it's page 154. And I'm going to be telling you about Peter, and I'd like to read some of this to you because I think it's this is a, a dream that is exceptionally vivid and, and really a straightforward kind of dream that can be interpreted, and we'll go into the interpretation a little bit because it's 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 a fascinating dream. And Peter, uh, he was, let's see, right here. Peter was a 49-year-old high school teacher suffering from anxiety and depression. His lifelong child reflex of low self-esteem and insecurity dominated his life, leaving him feeling victimized by his symptoms. He was eager to tell me about a rather exceptional dream. But before I get into his dream, uh, I'm going to post a picture of Peter made a drawing of the dream, and I've labeled it Peter's sketch of spider and child. And if you have a copy of my book, you could look on page 155. And if not, I'm going to I'm going to post a picture of Peter's spider in the blog section of my website, selfcoaching.net. I'd like you to take a look at it. It is, to me, one of the most remarkable dreams and depictions of a dream that I've ever seen. So let, let me get into the dream a little bit and you'll see what I mean. So here's the dream, according to Peter. I remember this dream where I was a very young child wearing only a diaper. I was seated next to a giant spider It was at least four feet tall. In my hand, I had a small hammer. Somehow, I knew my job was to crack open the spider. I kept pounding and pounding. I must have succeeded because I saw a crack with green ooze flowing out of the crack. In that moment, I knew I killed the spider. I don't recall having any emotions. I wasn't happy or sad. This was just my job. And that was Peter's dream. So let me read on a little of my interpretation, if you will. So as you might imagine, there are probably many psychologists who would have a field day interpreting this dream. For me, the interpretation was a fairly straightforward recapitulation of the work Peter and I were doing. Peter was the son of a rather menacing, codependent, web-weaving mother, and as long as she, for example, that giant spider, dominated his life, he was reduced to a relatively powerless child. Now, I say relatively powerless because the dream child demonstrates that with persistent hammering, the spider can be mortally wounded. The dream reflected a recent discussion we'd had about how controlling his mother was. As Peter put it, when I was growing up, no matter what I did, she would intrude, zipping up my coat, fixing my hair. I especially hated it whenever we went to visit someone. She would lick her handkerchief and then use it to clean my face. She treated me like a baby. And that's the diapered child in the dream. So Peter grew up controlled, never in since he depended on his mother to swoop down and protect him from every challenge or struggle. Peter never developed the self-confidence to handle life independently. And this is the scourge of codependency. What controlled him now as an adult was no longer his domineering mother, who incidentally had passed away years ago. It was his perception of powerlessness and lack of self-reliance that had tracked him through his life. So you might conclude, as I did, that the giant spider was an obvious symbol of his symbiotic, devouring mother. And you wouldn't be wrong. But for Peter, the spider lends itself to an even larger interpretation. You see, no spider in the world grows to be four feet tall. None that I've ever heard of. So, this suggests that Peter's spider was an exaggeration of what his insecurity had grown into. Yes, the spider was representative of his mother's dominance over him during his developmental years, but now it had morphed into something much larger and more pervasive in his life. It was something that had to be cracked and killed. So, if you do get a moment, go to my website, take a look at Peter's sketch. And what's striking is the contrast in size between the child Peter and the spider. This imbalance in potency, gigantic spider versus diapered child. It's a vivid example of how insecurity can get represented by the unconscious. Well, what do you think? That dream was absolutely instrumental in Peter getting it. And what he got was the fact that he was this impotent, powerless child, relatively powerless, until this dream. And to be a diapered child as an adult, well, you could see just how diminished one can be. So the dream portrayed Peter as that diapered child. And the monstrous spider, as I mentioned from the reading, was a was really no longer his mother who had passed away, but the insecurity that had grown, that which had ruled him. You know, a few podcasts back, I introduced the notion of the parent reflex. And, you know, that's the dominating parent, you should do this and and all that stuff that makes you feel guilty if you don't. That's the parent reflex. And in Peter's case, it was the insecurity and the nature of that parent reflex That was dominating his life the child had not grown into an adequate adult as children are inadequate and only reached their adult status in their mid to late 20s so peter was up against the insecurity the habit of his insecurity and fortunately he found a tool and with that tool, he. Began, I remember he described it to me as kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen these little hammers that you use to break ice cubes. They're on a flexible kind of staff, and they and you crack into the ice. It was that kind of a tool he mentioned. And he was just persistent, tapping, tapping, tapping. And eventually he found that crack. And eventually he knew that he had, in a sense, cracked the problem of his life. And it was that beginning where he realized that he needed to develop his own self-trust, self-confidence, self-reliance. He no longer felt diminished. He felt empowered by that dream. He felt enthusiastic. And he started to feel a sense of courage, if you will. And it was a turning point in therapy. And to me, it was therapy that represented the pounding, the tapping, the pounding, because each week we would go at this insecurity and go at it and go at it and try to crack it and diminish it. So that's that's kind of one of those dreams. Don't, don't think you're going to have a dream like that every time you go to sleep or you're going to be able to interpret one every time you have a major kind of significant dream. But sometimes the dream world comes forward and paints a very vivid picture. Now, Peter and I had been working on his chipping away of his insecurities, never in the language of spider and child. Although I do use the term child reflex, because we we carry the habits, the developmental habits of insecurity from our childhood. But nevertheless, it was therapy that was the the hammer and the chipping away and he was peter was much more enthusiastic about pursuing his therapy and our discussions and he did quite well and as he developed self-trust his life became totally liberated in so many ways that it, it it's just it's hard to imagine when you are bottled up by insecurity it's hard to imagine what your life can be on the other side of that insecurity But once you get a taste of it it's there's no no returning you know why would you go back to something that didn't work something that's painful when you can have a life more meaning and resilience and competency so peter peter did quite well haven't heard from him since it's been a while and uh, i think that it's important for you to know that your dreams have a purpose. We don't always understand the purpose. There are scientists that say that uh, dreams are are able to replenish and, and kind of uh, substantiate our our psychological homeostasis, our balance. I believe that. I think that if we if we didn't dream, and I recall a study from way back when I was in college where they they stopped uh, uh, people from dreaming. They were in a, a dream lab situation. And with REM sleep, where your eyes flutter, that's usually when you are dreaming. Uh, and I believe it's stage two sleep. And they they kept waking these, these poor subjects up every time they had a dream. So the subjects were able to get sleep, but dreamless sleep. And after a few weeks of this, uh, I'm not sure how long it lasted, and and I'm just giving you my best recollection of the study, uh, there was, you know, really severe, almost psychotic symptoms. You know, so I, I kind of like the concept that dreams are an attempt to keep us balanced and fortified, to work through those issues that that really stymie us and keep us imprisoned. And why not? Everything in our existence is survival-oriented. Everything in our evolutionary adaptation is geared towards survival and well-being. So why not our dreams? It's not just an artifact of something that happens for no reason. Everything in our body, in our psyche, in our mind is there for an evolutionary adaptive reason. So I have to assume that dreams are part of that world, part of the world of the unconscious whose attempt is not to terrify us and not to scare us, but to somehow plow through some of these things and either diffuse or kind of offer uh, advice if you will but even though i don't and most people don't understand the true nature of dreaming uh, i do feel that dreams serve a valid purpose now do i do i suggest you start watching every dream uh, i did this for a while when i was in training analysis and you know a lot of people say well i never dream well, we all dream every single night. It's whether you recall a dream or not. And chances are sometimes for those people that don't recall dreams, you might be waking up during a sleep, in between a dream cycle. Dreams, you know, come and go throughout the night. So if you're waking up, if your alarm goes off and you're in between two dream states, uh, then chances are you're, you're going to forget your dream. If you do wake up, In middle of a dream you're more likely to recall that dream now if you want to work on your own dreams it's a good idea to write something down anything that's that will tip you off because dreams are fleeting you either grab hold of them or they'll just slip away so if you're interested in following your dreams or keeping a dream journal as i did uh, you can do that it's it's uh it's more like i said earlier it's more like interpreting poetry you might get something out of it, but then again, maybe you won't. But perhaps what you could get out of that would be just re, kind of refortifying the intent of the dream, even though we don't fully understand it. You know, by writing it down and giving it a little attention, whatever the dream purpose was, that innate, instinctual, adaptational desire to to kind of further us and to help us in our survival... Uh, just paying more attention to it sounds to me like maybe you get a little more mileage out of what our unconscious was trying to do for us. This is all my speculation. I'm not giving you any found psychological proof that my suggestions about dreams has any relevance other than my subjective feeling about dealing with this unconscious stuff for so many years. And I'm often I'm often intrigued with how interested patients are when they bring a dream to me. Uh, I guess everyone's looking for that. What does it mean? What does it mean? You know, we we're looking for that quick fix, and and we kind of uh, you know want that dream to be instructive to tell us. Sometimes, yeah, but most of the time, uh, there's you know might get some casual. You know, almost you know we we almost say, well, it seems like, and it could be. And that's okay. You know, it's okay to fish around and do your fishing. see if it helps. See if you find yourself uh, relating to any of the the thoughts and the themes of your dream. and And also look at the themes too, that you know, the thematic aspect, uh, if you're always anxious in the dreams and being chased and being hounded, you know we're talking about anxiety and and things that are feeling out of control. And of course, If you listen to any of my podcasts, you know how control is the sine qua non of my theory. It is the alpha, the omega. Everything that becomes emotionally tedious, everything that's related to our emotional struggle, comes about from trying to control life rather than trying to live our lives. Why does that happen? Well, in a nutshell, because insecurity we have not developed the sense of self trust to handle life as it evolves so we lean more heavily on trying to control life and that's the what ifs the doubts the fears the negatives where we're worried we're trying to figure out how to be safe so the more insecure you are the more you probably try to control life the obsessive compulsive person might do that by fixing everything on their desk in a certain way why do they do that well because the outer world, when it's all in its place, gives us a sense, a resonant sense that, well, that part of me, my world, is controlled. Therefore, it gives me a sense of solace. But when you have to have your outer world in control, then, of course, you know, you're know, you kind of chasing that carrot of trying to feel good from the external rather than the internal. So, and compulsivity comes in many shapes, sizes, and forms. You know, you can be a bit compulsive about one thing and not other things. But usually we try to control life because we're wanting to feel more in control. So if our world is controlled and it's that predictable, then we feel at ease. The more secure person still likes control, still likes to have a, a, a world, an orderly world. But the more secure person, well, they're able to relax a bit. They don't have to control everything. You know, it's more or less a want to rather than a have to. And their lives are much more, what shall we say, resonant with their own being. And they are more present and more able to be in the moment and let life unfold. Well, that's our little adventure into the. Vacuous nature of the night. And just to reiterate what I read earlier from Chet Ramo, the night is the beginning of terror, as every child knows. Who is not afraid of the dark? The gods are creatures of daylight, and the gods work nine to five. At night, we are on our own. And while you are on your own, Hopefully you're a little bit more fortified to realize that uh, there's a lot more to you that can be realized. And I wish you well. And how about visiting my website, Self <laughs> And how about visiting my website, selfcoaching.net, where you can learn more about my self-coaching philosophy. And don't forget to go to the blog section and take a look at Peter's sketch. So until next time, remember that being victimized by emotional struggle, well, it's not an option. By definition, victims are powerless, and you're not powerless. Remember, everything's hard until you make it simple. So what do you say you join me every week? And let's, let's at least try to make it simple together. Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems.